Hey guys, it's January 28th, 2018, and this is your episode 131 of At Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual are Megan Arms. Hello. And Ben Charles. Hey everybody. Ben, what's up with you chopping out online all the time? <laughs> I got a <laughs> recital next month, and I've got my, I have to play like a mini recital on Saturday for my day of percussion thing, so just been working stuff up and shared a little bit. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You get concerned because I can play as fast as you now. Do you work out before you record these videos? <laughs> <laughs> Usually earlier in the day, not not like yeah, right okay, before. yeah, like just a couple minutes beforehand. <laughs> I'll insert the video. Don't worry, people will know. <laughs> hey, wow. also, hey, my, my my student Kai Polan is also here. Hey, Kai. Hi. Kai's been on the show a couple times, so and I want to thank Kai. And also Caleb Pickering are my two DMA students here at JMU because, as you guys know, Laurel and I had a baby. So Yay! Yeah, so that's why, that's why we've been gone for these last two episodes now. And, yeah, again, I want to thank Kai and Caleb because they really took over for a whole solid week at JMU. And I think they only had to message me about 80 times or so with questions <laughs> and things. Probably 70 times, Caleb. Maybe, well, 79. Maybe so, yeah. Somewhere, somewhere in that ballpark. No, just kidding. They just did a great job and, like, no hiccup. And they just ran all the rehearsals and, and did everything really well. And, of course, you guys, Ben and Megan, thanks so much for just taking over and doing that duo episode. That was uh, really no fantastic. Problem. So Happy to do it. Yeah, Happy sure, for you sure, guys sure. also. Congratulations. Thanks. His name is Robin. Yeah. And special thanks to Caleb for doing that great So Percussion interview that we put out last week. That was a, a really, a really good episode. Hello. Yeah, so you guys, today's guest was an in-room performing member of the very famous and well-acclaimed and group we've talked about many, many times, the Jew Percussion Group in Taiwan. She was with them from 1993 to 2002. And during her time with the Jew Percussion Group, she performed in over 500 concerts and hundreds of music-related activities, including the annual seasonal concerts they have at the Taiwan National Concert Hall. I first met her while she was an adjunct professor at per- of percussion at Moorhead State University there with Brian Mason, and now she's a part-time assistant professor of percussion at DePauw University in Indiana. So hello and welcome, Dr. Ming-Hui Kuo. How's it going? Great. Thank you for including me at this uh, podcast series, at percussion podcast, podcast series, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy to be here and uh, happy to share my experience with you and chat for an hour, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. And yeah, the pleasure is totally ours. So I have a kid now and I'm a working percussionist. Do you have any advice? What am I in store for? How do I still practice? Because I don't find time to practice as it is. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, congratulations. You have uh, the newborn baby. That's a very, very wonderful gift. Nice. <laughs> That's the best gift ever. Uh, one of the thing is, uh, well, if we start to talk about this, it's probably going to be a whole hour about baby, talk about babies. How Let's to take, do it. You need, to, you, need to take, you need to be careful and talk about how to take care of baby for a mother. <laughs> so, I, I need to know. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, just I, I think it, I, I was lucky to have a lot of helpers 
to be honest with you. Um, if I don't have a lot of helpers, I don't. I, I think I probably uh, could could be like a retire for several years <laughs> already because yeah. really, really have a hard time to find a time to practice and accomplish things with a baby. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky that my my parents-in-law is really great help, and uh, you know, That's take good. care of baby without charging that much because you know how much musician make. Um, so really helpful. So I can I can actually finish my doctoral degree and work at Moorhead and be a full-time mom yeah. at the same time. So yeah. Yeah, that's a really big help. That was when you were in grad. You had your baby when you were in graduate school. Well, that were, yes, but that was a really bad yeah. idea. So, um, but <laughs> you don't but, recommend it. <laughs> I don't recommend it. So that was really, you know, how much you could you would get and. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, and I still need to find time to to practice because you need to finish a degree, and you don't want to finished degree with uh, mediocre work you want to still be outstanding so of course yeah so yeah i was pretty retired yeah well bravo to you though oh yeah thank you (laughs) i'm glad i survived (laughs) me too we all are (laughs) yeah well speaking of i guess seriously speaking for finding time to still practice with the job, I a thought came to my head when I was editing y'all's uh, two episodes ago when y'all did the, the duo episode with mm-hmm. Justin Alexander and Luis Rivera. You guys had mentioned uh, just how to find time as a university professor with all the extra work and all the teaching and just how busy, busy, busy it is. And of course, I wasn't on that episode, but the thoughts really came to my head of things to uh, what I would say in the conversation. Yeah. And it, it reminded me of something that John Beck said on our episode, which was <laughs> back when he was, I guess, full time at Eastman, they would suggest, hey, you know, would you would you be on this committee or would you do this extra thing? And I don't know if you guys remember his answer. But it was it was the answer was just, oh, I just said no, because I don't have time for that. Yeah. And and we were all just stunned, like, man, can we do that? Can we say that? Right. But I, I think it is really right. telling that we all are we all struggle with that a little bit or, or maybe not a little bit, maybe a whole lot, because, you know, these <clears throat> these job descriptions, they say, you know, we want an artist. We want a busy artist, someone who will attract students and is a name. It's like, dude, being a name takes some time. That takes a lot of time that's a whole other job in itself and yeah i don't know i feel like there's we have to keep talking about solutions to this and we still need to keep our you know uh skills keep up our skills right we still need to practice a lot in order to make the work like work (laughs) Yeah. yeah It's like an athlete and never exercise and i'm trying to win a, a champion that's kind of impossible right yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think it's I, I love John Beck's um, quote there, Casey. I'm glad you brought that back up, because I think some of us, especially as like junior faculty members or yeah, young artists, uh, it's it's we feel the pressure to say yes all the time because we want to keep our job. We want to do a good job and we want to be that person that you can come to, you know, and um, it's it's hard to draw the line and just say no, for sure. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I guess another word of thanks, I can definitely thank my department. I mean, just how supportive they've been in me having this baby taking a whole week off. They offered more. They offered official paternity leave. I talked to HR about getting the newborn on our plan and everything. And they, they said like, Oh great. What are we, what are we talking about for paternity leave? I mean, they just like immediately assumed. And I said, Oh, well actually I'm not going to officially take any, we're just going to kind of handle it within beyond that same note. I mean, I, I guess the thing I would say is, man, they're so supportive and just thanks so much to our department and Jeff Bush, my department chair. It's just really amazing. Everyone who like stepped up and helped. And a lot of times when you do say no, they're perfectly fine with it. That's very great. And you turned down paternity leave. Do I? I well, did. Oh, oh, I thought it was <laughs> <laughs> paternity. Yeah, yeah, I did. I guess I thought, oh, I'm, I'm still just in my third year here, and I, there's, I just do too. Honestly, I didn't see how you guys would have done <laughs> the whole semester without, yeah. <laughs> without me. It's just a little too much, I think. You know, given the the whole regular classes you have to teach and all your classes you have to take. And yeah, it's just a little, I figured out oh, that's too much. Yeah. So I learned something from last week, actually. Yeah. Like last week you wasn't here sometimes. And, uh, but I, I believe most of us undergrad and graduate student here, they feel they need to put more responsibility to themselves. Because sure. you're not here, and this, uh, we do have a regular schedule. You post on the the Facebook group, mm -hmm. and everybody just okay. No one will remind us when it's to do what. So I think it's good lesson to us as well. Yeah, sure. Well, that's that's good to hear because it encourages to me like, hey, you don't have to hold hands as much as you sometimes do. You know, yeah. yeah thanks. That's it's good. hard to let go. I know. I feel that too. You know. It's very important. It's hard to let go. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, how about a question for Ming? She is our guest. I just came up with a few questions. Hey, can you tell us a little bit about starting percussion young in Taiwan? And Kai, if you want to add anything to this, uh, please. What are the differences in how we do it here and how uh, what your experience was like in Taiwan? Well, um, my experience, I, I, as I know, um, a lot of um, almost every music major, we all start with the piano, right? Most of the, the, the music major student, we all require to have a certain amount of piano abilities. I mean, um, we all start from piano. It has to be uh, like that way. I don't know why, but uh, that's how we, we, we do it. And it's a little bit different around here. A lot of uh, uh, students that I met, they're all starting from the uh, uh, music or learning uh, the instrument because the band, concert band and uh, or, or marching band. But in Taiwan, if you are thinking about majoring in music, you have to um, have uh, at least have a minor in piano. Uh, I, I learned piano when I was young and um, my uh, my parents was really nice to me. It's not really like like a push me a lot. Oh, you have to practice every day. And it's like just because I love it and I practice. So when 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 I comes to uh, the time like middle school and I'm thinking about um, uh, auditioning for this uh, performance art high school, 
it becomes a problem because I didn't work as hard as the other pianist, so I cannot major in piano because it's too competitive. Um, so I have to choose the instrument for my major and put the piano as a minor. So everybody has some, you know, either minor in piano or major in piano, but the mi minor in some other instruments in Taiwan. I, I think it's still the same, right? Uh, Kai, yeah. yeah, I think I think is a same yeah. like to yeah. percussion education in Taiwan. I think you told me that before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, by the time I need to choose the instrument, my teacher actually gave me two choice, two choices. One is a percussion. One is flute. Which one do you want to choose? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a middle school student, and I was like, you know, drumming sounds like more fun. It's more fit my personality. It's like I like I'm more outgoing, and flutes make uh, it's always give me images of you know very elegant ladies and play flutes. I don't see myself as elegant lady over there. <laughs> and at that same time, uh, flute um, was a little bit pricier for me. I was like, oh, flute is expensive. And the teacher showed me, oh, you learn percussion, you only need to buy a pair of drumsticks and a drum pad. Oh, great, this is cheap. <laughs> However, yeah. really, really <laughs> naive I was. But uh, turns out I really love percussion. And I was lucky uh, after I got auditioned to this performing art high school and I have a, I had opportunity to learn and study with uh, Pei Ching Wu, um, who is the principal of the drum percussion group. I know, I believe you know her, right? Yeah, you met her. Pei Ching. I've met Pei Ching a couple times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's uh, my my uh, primary percussion teacher and uh, and uh, longtime friend. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's just a rock star. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, she is the one that I really admire that she's talented, also work very hard. Yeah. I mean, there's no excuse in front of her. Any excuse is not excuse. That's the lesson I learned from her. And then all the lessons I, I had, I, 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 I cannot come out any excuse that, oh, I'm, I, I, I can't, I didn't practice today. I cannot come out any excuse because she's always like, there's no excuse for that. If you are not sick, too sick, that you, if you don't need to go to hospital, you should come over here to study, to, to have a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, that's kind of how I am <laughs> with my students. <laughs> yeah, how you know when, when I when I uh, had a lesson with her and you know high school students, sometimes you come up with excuse because you don't practice. You you know it's kind of being lazy for for a week or something. I said, oh, I, I'm sick. I don't feel comfortable. I cannot go to lessons. So, oh, I feel so bad. Oh, do you need to go to the hospital right now? I said no. And then you should come over here for the lesson. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> and I just like, all right, yeah. So that means that you know, I I cannot say anything. Like you know, I I have to admit that I didn't practice in the next. Yeah. So she said, "Oh, you should practice." Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this piece called Solar Myth that Jew Percussion Group does. Solar Myth. Oh man, well it's a it's a sort of like marimba spiritual setting, three percussion marimba solo, and it's really man, just really cool. I mean, it's very different than marimba spiritual. It's it's very theatrical. And oh yeah, Ming, were you doing the fans? <laughs> no, no, no. 
They, oh, I know that one. Do you know that one? Yeah, you. Yeah. Um, That's uh, awesome. This is, this piece is a. I think they started um, uh, commissioned this piece and performed this a lot. Well, after I I, I, I left the percussion group, so I'm not I'm really I'm, uh, really familiar with that piece. Um, but the, before they they have this piece commissioned, and there's just uh, there's some of the other type of the similar theatric piece that's called Pazona. Hmm. It's a similar thing, but um, <clears throat> I remember I performed with the with the her, and the, we have to. She wants to have a costume on, so you know, the, you know, the, the piece is her role for that piece is kind of uh, is a wizard, uh, witches. Sorry. Yeah. But, oh yeah. So we have to have a piece that I also play with that uh, with her for that kind of concerto. So I have to, we have the one piece before she and uh, me and her doesn't, doesn't play. And I have to go, we both run to the backstage. I have to set up the hair for her and I change the clothes <laughs> for her. And then I run to the stage, you play the uh, intro and then she come out with like, it's yeah. so theatrical. I mean, it's just I, and and so well. I mean, I know we have a lot of <laughs> theatrics and pieces, but this is I don't know. I've just never, mm-hmm. I haven't seen stuff done mm-hmm. that well that often. I mean, it's just a, fantastic. Yeah, this is a, a, one it's of amazing the style of music that they they want to do. They like to do these these commissions. Do they they stay with Jew percussion? Or do they eventually get out to? You know, could the JMU Percussion Ensemble play Solar Myth someday? Does it eventually go up for sale and get spread around? Do you know? Well, there's several, yeah, some some of these they keep themselves. They only can perform by by Jew Percussion Group because they still want to have their uh, own own uh, you know special specialties mm-hmm. uh, feature for the the group. And some of the commission uh, piece that uh, after several years of releasing can can um, you know open for the public to perform. I believe some of them are, are like that. Okay. So kind of half and half, or it really depends on their contract. But I, yeah. Do you guys I, remember I, the last time Jew Percussion has played at PASIC? Do we know the last time they were in the States? It was pretty recent. It's been I a little like, while, right? Was it recent? I feel like it was a while ago. I thought it was something like 2010, even. I uh, thought it was a while ago, too. But I, I could be wrong. I think it was in Louisville, actually. Okay. Okay, that would be a while ago then. I can't remember which year was that, but uh, but uh, it was like that that yeah. long. Like, was in Louisville. Okay, you, Kai, you're gonna say something about yeah. the rep? No, about the the publishing the their commission music because one thing uh, in Taiwan we we may not have a percussion publisher company, and yeah. uh, so. Maybe is that kind of different culture here? If you have a commission music and uh, one publisher company or the composer is very close to one company, they will ask them to help them publish the music. However, in Taiwan, probably we don't have or not not yet. Oh. Mm-hmm. This is a, this so a, many many of the uh, commission music or original music from Taiwanese composer is not published, mm-hmm. so they probably just perform one to two times. Wow. You have to know the composer and then contact them directly if you really want to perform and then ask them about the, you know, the, the contract between the, the piece with the is, group. 
is is copyright law in Taiwan similar to copyright law in China? Because I know in China it's really really different. I don't know about the policy in China, but I'm uh, not sure. Okay, I mean, I've, but my understanding is basically kind of non-existent. Um, um, in China. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't. I don't know about that. I cannot make any okay. comments. On that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. The okay. answer to when the when last time with PASIC it was two thousand nine. Nine. Oh. Yeah. Nine. It's very close. <laughs> Casey wins. <clears throat> I win. I'm a dad now. You can get second. <laughs> I'm a dad now. I need to be right about ben stuff. Ben loses. That's for sure. It's I'm not the price crucial, but I'm correct. We lost because we were both over. Not 2014. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There's a, but there's a lot at stake oh, to being like, wrong now. Remember that that one too, 2009. I can't. Oh my bad. Um, <laughs> I, I know I was there with them. I mean, it was like every yeah, year right. I, I go go hang out with them because I miss them very much. Yeah, I'm sure. Man, yeah. I was wondering if you you studied with Pei Ching Wu, and for anyone that's not familiar, Pei Ching is one of the few people in the world that is renowned as a six mallet player. Did you yep. ever study six mallets at all with her? Very briefly, yeah. But uh, um, when she was writing the dissertation, I was with her helping her. Um, you know, I'm not really helping her collect the information because that's her work. I'm helping her to take a picture of she's her holding mallets. <laughs> Could you? Because I've seen like very little video footage of it, but I know it's the thing she does, and I know it's her, she wrote a dissertation on it. Could you tell us about her sort of six mallet style? She's primarily holding the burden grip style, and she compares to there's a traditional way and the, the Stevens way, and found out the burden's way is the best way to control those uh, you know intervals change, and. Um, I learned briefly with her, and we we, we kind of um, we had one year, you know, have a this a butterfly percussion group. We perform one of the pieces of uh, uh, six mallets um, and uh, kind of ensemble. So both all four of us play a certain amount of six mallets in that piece. So um, I, I remember she showed us that the different way of uh, holding the grips, and we choose that we still choose the burden's way. It, it's a, it's easier. It's not like easy, but it's easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I've played a Prism Rhapsody by Keiko Abe, and there's a little tiny bit of six mount playing that. That's I did like a Burton grip and shove an extra mount in there, and yeah, it seemed to work the best. I have a technique for six mallets. I'm writing a book on. It's called Call Up Another Player and Drag Out Another Marimba. It's just <laughs> the book's just a list of list of phone numbers, players you could call because six mallets is too hard. <laughs> it's just I, a I copy have to say, of method though, of movement to, well, she, to a two mallet she, book. Yeah, she likes to challenge yourself, so you know that's that's definitely her thing. She she likes. Well, whatever whatever she says, I have to say, I mean, she's the the most impressive six mallet player I've seen. Yeah, I've also seen Jack Van Geem. He is incredible at six mallets. If you guys know Jack Van Geem, mm-hmm. there was a video. And I think he does, he does it the same way, playing six mallets. One one of the. Th- uh, the fact for holding the six mallets, you have to be very powerful because six mallets is really heavy to hold and play all the time. It's really heavy. <laughs> ben, do you want to go to a topic? Yeah, sure. Do you want to do my topic? Is that what you're... <laughs> I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, or we can do mine if you want. Cool. 
Um, so whenever we have a performer I don't know a whole lot about on the podcast, I always like to look up their YouTube channel. And so I looked up Ming's YouTube channel and found quite a few sort of uh, pieces that I knew, but I don't think it performed very much. And one of the pieces she has a recording of is Toward the Sea by Toru Takamitsu. And we haven't actually ever talked about Toru Takamitsu in any sort of depth on the podcast before, so I wanted to talk about Mr. Takamitsu today. Um, if you're curious for more information about Takamitsu, there's a book by Peter Burt called The Music of Toru Takamitsu that has, I think, quite a lot of good information in it. I found the sort of free preview of it on Google and stole some stuff from it, but it's probably something I should buy and read at a certain point. But thanks anyway, for just... telling everyone that, Ben. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for publicly saying that. It's a free that. preview. That's legal. So <laughs> uh, I just wanted to share first some biographical information and then get on to his sort of percussion-focused music. He was born in Tokyo, Japan on October 8th, 1930. A month later, his family moved to China. And then eight years later, they returned to Japan in 1938. Uh, if you're familiar with history at all, you know that around this period is when World War II was taking place, and he was actually forced into military service in 1944 when he was 14 years old. And Takamitsu described this experience as extremely bitter. From what I understand, there was there were concerns of foreign invasion into Japan, and so they were basically digging trenches, and so he was a trench digger. And this was obviously very hard on a 14-year-old child. Uh, also, Western culture was basically banned during this time in Japan, so he was not at all familiar with Western music, and it sounds like there was one of the older sort of sergeants or something like that snuck a few of the kids off and played on a gramophone using a makeshift bamboo needle, a popular French song, and he sort of fell in love with it, and it sounds like it gave him sort of hope for outside of this war. So after the war, the U.S. Armed Forces were occupying, occupying Japan, and he worked for the U.S. Armed Forces, and he fell ill during this period and actually became bedridden, and so he immersed himself in Western music that he now had access to while he was bedridden, and he later stated that Japanese traditional music always recalled the bitter memories of war, and he wanted to distance himself from it. And he wanted to distance himself so much that when he later discovered one of his early works had inadvertently used some Japanese traditional scales, he actually destroyed the work. Huh. Um, so he began composing mostly self-taught. There were, I think, two composition teachers I found listed throughout the years, but he was almost entirely self-taught. He began composing at the age of 16. He once stated that his teachers were Duke Ellington and Nature, which I think is a pretty cool statement. Uh, so around this time in 1951, he founded an experimental workshop, which in Japanese was called Jiken Kobo. It was an anti-academic artistic group that was focused on multidisciplinary collaboration and, uh, most importantly, avoidance of Japanese traditions. By 1955, he had actually begun to experiment with electronic music as well, uh, and he first had ideas for electronic music in 1948. In 57, he wrote a piece called Requiem for String Orchestra, and in 1958, there was a composer named Igor Stravinsky that was visiting Japan, and there, it sounds like there was sort of this organization that wanted to play a bunch of prominent Japanese music for Stravinsky, and they accidentally played Takamitsu's Requiem for String Orchestra, and they started to cut it off, and Stravinsky actually said, no, don't turn that off, and made them play it till the end of the piece. 
uh, which is huh. fascinating to me. And that uh, that work sort of that association with Stravinsky helps catapults him to international prominence. If you want to look this work up, it's interesting because it sounds to me like late German Romanticism, like early Schoenberg combined with Hindemith, um, which for a self-taught musician to come up with something that advanced sounding is pretty astounding. So this association with Stravinsky helped, like I said, launch Takamitsu into international success, and he received a commission from the Kusevitsky Foundation for Aaron Copland and the San Francisco Symphony, which was probably Stravinsky's suggestion. Um, going on in his sort of career, in the 1960s, he became familiar with John Cage's work, and he experimented with indeterminacy and graphic scores. This influence did not seem to last in his music, but Cage's interest in Oriental, excuse me, Orientalism actually sort of turned Takamitsu back onto traditional Jap Japanese music, and he found the beauty in his own culture. And so he started to incorporate Japanese elements into his music. Specifically, he started writing pieces for the biwa and shakuhachi, which are respectively a Japanese lute and a Japanese flute. During the 1970s, when he was reaching this international prominence, he was actually able to meet many of his Western contemporaries, including Karlheinz Stockhausen, Vinko Globokar, and Olivier Messiaen, which he uh, pretty much cited as his large, largest influence. Um, so getting on to his works, I found six chamber works that included percussion, and I'll just list off the titles of those. They're not necessarily percussion-specific. They are called In Order by composition year, Sacrifice, Stanza 1, Waves, Bryce, Waterways, and Rainspell. His major sort of percussion works include a piece called Munari by Munari, which was written in 1967 and revised in 1971 for percussion solo. It's a graphic score based on a painting by the Italian artist Munari. Uh, in 1970, he wrote a piece called Seasons for Percussion Quartet. There's also a version for percussion solo with tape. And then I found some of the more out-there pieces. 1971, he wrote a concerto for solo percussion called Cassiopeia. The instrument list for this is crotales, steel pan, three omglock and wind chimes, two gongs, two tam-tams, two sizzle cymbals, kalimba, timpani, tambourine, steel sheet, wood blocks, log drum, temple blocks, wooden plate, cowbell, five boobams, four rototoms, three tom-toms, and two kick drums with orchestra. Quite the extensive percussion battery there. In 1974, he wrote a concerto for marimba with six onglocken for the famous Japanese marimba player Michiko Takahashi called Gitimalia, Bouquet of Songs. And the interesting feature of this concerto is that it actually has no violins. He took the violins out of the orchestra to sort of clear a space for the marimba. And Bill Murr says it probably doesn't get performed all that often because no one wants to pay their violins to not work. <laughs> uh, in 1977, this is not a percussion work, but I wanted to point it out. He arranged 12 songs for guitar, including, I think, four Beatles songs. And I've heard some of these performed on marimba, and they are gorgeous arrangements. And all I can say is it sounds like Takamitsu arranged the Beatles. It's pretty cool stuff. Very huh. sort of extended, huh. colorful harmonies. Worked very nicely on marimba. Um, in 1981, he wrote a piece called Tour the Sea, which until today I did not know was not written for marimba. <laughs> it's actually originally for alto flute and guitar, but it seems to be performed very often on marimba, and that is, like I said, the piece that Ming played. Also in 1981, he wrote his Rain Tree for vibraphone and two marimbas with crotales that I think 
is probably his most performed percussion work. In 1984, he wrote a piece called Wavelength, which is an unfinished stage work for two percussionists, two dancers, and video installation. And then uh, the last piece uh, that I found was from 1990. It's called From Me Flows What You Call Time. It was commissioned by the Carnegie Hall Corporation for the centennial season of Carnegie Hall for Nexus, the Boston Symphony, and Seiji Ozawa. So this is a percussion quintet concerto, and I have the instrument list for this, which is also extensive, so bear with me. There's a steel pan part that was famously played by Bob Becker, glockenspiel, vibraphone, cratales, seven Pakistani noah bells, five tai gongs, two temple bowls placed on timpani, six Chinese water gongs, anklung, Darabuka, five Elmglacken, eight log drums, five tom-toms, two snare drums, marimba, three tam-tams, three suspended cymbals, and three Chinese cymbals. Um, mm -hmm. This work also has a pretty unique feature in that there are these wind chimes, and think about like front porch type wind chimes, not the ones we use in percussion, that are suspended on the ceiling, and there are these beautiful, colorful ribbons that come down from them to the stage. And there's a video of the Berlin Philharmonic performing this, and you see these ribbons going up to the ceiling. And I thought a nice quote to kind of sum all this up comes from Seiji Ozawa. He says, I am very proud of my friend Toru Takamitsu. He is the first Japanese composer to write for a world audience and achieve international recognition. So yeah, that's Toru Takamitsu. I would love to hear about if anyone's played Rain Tree or your experience with uh, the... Um, I'm blanking on it. <laughs> Casey, edit this part out. Toward the sea. Uh, the Ming had. <laughs> well, I, I I can say real quick. I don't know. We, we want to hear from Ming, but I I've told people many times I've played Rain Spell, and every time I tell percussionists I've played Rain Spell, they go, "Oh, you mean Rain Tree? It's called Rain. Uh, excuse me, it's called Rain Tree." And I'm like, "No, there's one called Rain Spell too. It's a chamber piece. It's vibraphone, harp, clarinet, piano, blah 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 blah. And I've also played Waves. Cool. Yeah, but we want to hear from Ming. Well, for me, <laughs> it's very, a very, very long biography. I mean, it's, there's so many uh, amazing Japanese um, um, percussion-related composition and a lot of composers. So the, uh, Takamizu's work is one of them. And for this piece, when I play this piece with my friend, actually it was really simple, 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 simple reason because that was her recital piece. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the the flute part is really really significant difficult I think I'm not a flutist but it looks very difficult to me and uh, she she um, gave me the parts with guitar parts also gave me the heart part there's a uh, two different versions one is a harp and one is a guitar version so I kind of combine both and I I actually use the harp version more than, you know, I decided to use a harp because I have more the uh, lower register. I, I think it'll, I, I think it will blend better with a flute if we, I'm not a, really a composer, but my sense of the, you know, I kind of want to have some of the lower register sound with, versus with the flute, high uh, auto flute, medium, low, uh, high pitch sounds. I think it blends better. I like that. So <clears throat> choose the, this version to play with her. It was really Really uh, great experience. Yeah. Has, any, has anyone else seen Nexus play? Um, what is it from from me? What, what is the full title, Ben? What you blah, blah, blah. Flows from me time. flows what you talk. Call <laughs> time. Yeah. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. 
I've seen them perform that live a couple of times, and it is incredible. Mm. Yeah, what are some of Absolutely the incredible most, uh, uh, theatric um, elements for the for the percussion? And uh, I, I this is a kind of away from this topic a little bit, but it just remind me some of the works that I was doing with the true percussion group in the in the past ten years. <clears throat> not this past ten years, between ninety three to uh, 03, actually, it's not 02. <clears throat> So one of the very um, uh, kind of serious uh, music series is really, really, um, um, I really, really enjoy it and uh, had a lot of fun and it really impacted me about how, how percussion performance was, is the music theater series. There, and they have, uh, they have, this is probably uh, three um, different um, uh, program when I was there, and the re most recently it was Mulan. Uh, I think they, you probably guys know that. I, 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 I didn't participate with Mulan this this series at all because I I'm, I'm already busy teaching and then having my baby right here. <laughs> so, um, but the, um, at the beginning, they uh, the first uh, music theater I remember was a uh, uh, dream wind chime kind of type of thing. This. I would have to say Mr. Drew was really brave at that time because if you want to have those uh, interdisciplinary uh, kind of program and, and you want to have this whole program happen and uh, and uh, sell a ticket and uh, to the audience that who are not, never familiar with this kind of type of performance, it's a, it's a big risk. Mm -hmm. And you need to spend a lot of money for this. I remember the first one was... Um, uh, of course, they have a composer to to uh, compose whole for whole concerts, like a one hour and a half of concerts for by one composer. And we have this uh, amazing uh, scene happen. That you know, the, this uh, I was uh, I was one singing uh, was uh, sitting in a swing, and was uh, waiting on the top of you know where the the, the lights are. Because we're in the theater, so we kind of, I kind of sit on the top of the where the lights are. See how high that is, and the, and the with the all line of the wind chimes, probably five hundred wind chimes on that, on the on that setting. So and there's a moment, and the whole whole thing, you know, kind of pulled it down, and I was swinging in a swing, <laughs> and a whole and a uh, you know play the wind chime on. <laughs> so it's very scary. Holy cow! Yeah. But it was really fun, and it, the, the, that's one of the moments. That's a part of the music. So I'm just playing that, and the, the at the same time, the the stage rise up with about five, probably five hundred of balloons, come out stage, and the, the the player, the members come out with the you know like dance costume with the mallets with the needles on it, pop all of those balloons off. What? Cool. That's amazing. I want to play that part, but the, I, unfortunately, yes, I was seriously. Play wing chun. That was fun. Well, you have to be on the swing. That's pretty cool too. Yeah, but that was the. It was like uh, um, probably uh, in in the '90s. In the, you know, it's a, it, it was very early um, music series for for that. It was really really brave ideas I want to want to bring up from the audience. It was really early. I re remember that. That's really impressive. Yeah. So when you see people in the States, like percussion ensemble, and we're going to like 
you know, parading with djembes from the audience in the aisles? Or are you just like, oh, my God, this is so lame? <laughs> <laughs> we still do that a lot. <laughs> it's yeah. like, come on, come down from the ceiling and have a few thousand balloons. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, anything that's less than 500 balloons is not entertaining. <laughs> well, yeah, they pop it every, you know, you know, they pop every single one. And the popping, yeah. That's cool. That was so, that's super cool. So was this one of the pieces that you did in those 500 concerts with Jew yeah. Percussion? Yeah. Wow. Uh, how, how many? It's actually probably more than 500 concerts because it's more like a concerts and gigs. I just can't, you know, you, you when. When I was in with them, I didn't notice like I need to um, keep all my programs or all my records to make my resume looks awesome. I wasn't thinking about that at all because I thought I'm gonna be in the drum percussion group. Period. <laughs> I yeah, didn't right. Come over here and become a, a, a professor at the university. I never thought about that. Because I thought after I graduate from my my college, my my again my uh, master degree and doctor degree, I'm going back. You know, to to percussion group would take a full time job over there. So that that was my thought. I I didn't yeah. know I gonna meet my husband and marry he marry to him and then stay here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, sure. Oh, then, you know. then then you've got something, I think. Yeah, the the theatrical thing reminded me of, and it's not anywhere near as entertaining as that. <laughs> the theatrical thing reminded me of in the score for Rain Tree. There are actually directions on lighting. Um, mm -hmm. and sort of a theatrical element to that as well. And I came across a blog entry on the Nexus blog by Bob Becker called Answers to Questions About Rain Tree by Toru Takamitsu. And uh, Mr. Becker talks about he worked with Takamitsu in Japan on the lighting, and it sounds like uh, they had a uh, fourth person offstage with the score that was controlling the lights and it sounds like, I, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it sounded like at, at one rate it was effective, but also Takamitsu thought it was distracting, and he said to just scrap that part of the instructions. Huh. Um, but then also, if you know anything about uh, Rain Tree, you know that it requires a low A and low B critale, which are not at all standard. <laughs> and I, Bob Becker says in this blog entry, he says, I have two sets of the low A and B critales that are required for Raintree. The older set I ordered from Kohlberg at, in Germany at great expense when Nexus started touring with the piece. They sucked when I got them and they still sound like crap. Robin refused to play the low A. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's so funny because like we always think of wow. Kohlberg as making these just legendary, amazing percussion instruments, but apparently can't make a low critale. <laughs> Well, sure. I mean, every instrument. Wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> but I mean, just the physics of the tuning. Yeah, I mean, like vibraphones sound crappy right, like, at a also, certain point. You know. Yeah. 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 Crotales are going to sound go bad. Lower, and that's probably why the crotales don't go any lower. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, instruments have a range based on the physics of how they function and how they work. You would think, because this piece, in, I would imagine uh, that Russell Peck's percussion trio concerto. Uh, the glory and the grandeur, they both require those low critales. I can't remember what note the other one needs, but you would think someone would come up with like a low A and B critale to sell on Steve Weiss or something, but nope. Yeah, right. You know, Zildjian has those critales. They're they're kind of silver looking and they're tuned. They sound they sound great, but they're tuned so the overtones don't clash as hard. I don't know if you guys have heard those. They just sound really clean. 
like you don't get that piercing, piercing oh. dissonance on like a minor second. Have you heard them? No, not yet. But I, I was Stan Williams. It's cool, cool. Megan, I'm sorry. You you had something. I think we had a little internet blip there. No, I just I I would just um, I think that most people probably take those critiques up the octave. Did you guys do that? If if you played it, I haven't played it, but I know that's a, a common thing. It's probably common, yeah. I just play it on marimba. It sounds fine. Well, add it. Yeah, yeah. add it. Yeah, right. Just tune, yeah. Up, tune up the timpani. <laughs> yeah, I just play, yeah, whatever. Play the pious Chang mallet on the timpani. Sounds, <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds bad. What do you got, Ben? Uh, Ming, I came across two other pieces on your YouTube. I wanted to ask if you could just tell us a little bit about. I'll ask both, and then you can take them one by one. One is The Wave, which is a sort of uh, almost like a sequel to Marimba Spiritual. It's Marimba Solo with four percussionists that was written for Keiko Abe. I think it was by Keiko Abe and another percussionist or composer. I can't remember his name. And also, you played a piece called Robert's Park, which I don't think anyone has heard of except for me, because the composer of it was actually a band parent at my high school, David Brown. <laughs> Really? Yeah, and so David Brown played in the Blue That's Devils insane. pit in like the early 80s. He was the first, like in the first DCI pit ever, and he studied at Juilliard, and he, he does not play marimba anymore, but I have his recording from when he did play marimba, and he was one bad boy. He could seriously play marimba. Dang! Yeah, for this, that that piece, I really, really love the second movement, and really um, beautiful it's really beautiful. I it's just like when I play the second movement, it just I just oh, keep you know. Can you imagine? I I have a goosebump when I play that piece. <laughs> and the, the second movement is called Lullaby for Evelyn, and it's dedicated yeah. to Evelyn Glennie. Uh, yeah, this is seven. Uh, that's a second movement. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this piece is also uh, not published anymore, right? So how how did you come across it? I don't know. You know, this is one of pieces that, oh, wow. <laughs> Long history, you want to listen to it? <laughs> From when I was in Taiwan, um, that was a year that uh, the period of the time that the internet is not really <laughs> popular as it, convenient as right now. And all of the music that we order from Steve Wise are from, just from catalog. Mm. So this is a one of a piece. I just kind of like Mark, Mark Park. Oh, those Robert's Park looks good. Mark, and I order it. That's it. And so excellent. It turned out pretty good. <laughs> that was like, we, we probably, that was a, a time I, I really good on spending money on, on, on Steve Weiss. I probably order like a 20, 30 minutes, uh, 30 pieces, but only can use probably five or six. <laughs> Because right. I, I don't have any resources. I mean, no YouTube at that time, and uh, you know the limit of the, of the resource of performance in Taiwan, and then all of all of these published works are in United States. So, and and that time that the um, Sleepwise doesn't have doesn't have a website, or they have, I just don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, then you know, just order from catalog those description from the catalog. That's I it. remember that it was like a phone book style yeah. catalog. Yeah. Yeah, the paper was really thin. But that's a, that was a that was a time that we ordered music from Steve Wise. So, yeah. so that, that was one of the music order from during that time, and I uh, and we play it, and uh, I I just love the second movement a lot. I didn't play a first and third as often as second, and the second movement um, that 
I posted on YouTube, YouTube, it was one, I put that piece in between two fast piece. So the, that lullaby, um, that, that piece, the second movement is really, really kind of like, um, soften the, 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 the two like fast aggressive piece, like it kind of calmed down a little bit. Yeah. And I give a very, uh, good, good, um, you know, movement for, for the audience, like kind of relax type of music. Yeah. I do remember ordering music from Steve Weiss that I had no idea what it was. Like you said, no internet, no YouTube, no website. <laughs> do you guys remember doing that? I was, I was thinking of asking everyone, I do, do you remember, remember the that. last time you did a shot in the dark? Like, oh, this looks like it might be cool. I'll order it. And of well, course, also, it's like, like nothing. When you were buying, you know, your, I don't know, C refractions or whatever, it's like, the piece costs like four dollars, and it's going to be eight dollars to ship it. You're like, well, I might as well just get a couple other things while I'm calling. Right, right. Yeah, I remember yeah. order one percussion ensemble piece and come up with a very beautiful graphic pictures and uh, and uh, projecting this uh, kind of little film ish thing. And uh, you know, I was a high school student. I have no idea what this graphic graphic notation is. I was like, oh, what is this? I'm kind of wasting my money. <laughs> Title was really beautiful, nice, and then you know it's like a, you know grade six piece. You know the 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 difficulty level is grade six. Okay, this must be a great piece, so we order it. So I have no idea what what was it. You know, for a high school student at that time, I really don't don't get it. What's that? <laughs> I'm I'm guessing that the wave didn't just happen across. I'm guessing you knew the wave. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Uh, I, thanks for reminding me. I was need to talk about the wave. The wave I uh, first saw was uh, um, was in Taiwan. One of the members she played played this piece for one of the concerts, and this is before the wave actually official pop, uh, published. So um, I, I I love it that piece because there's some of the great kind of like flamingo style of clapping. I really like it, and uh, uh, it's. It sounds like a Keiko Abe's and <laughs> and the the um, those uh, um, um, second half of the piece is really really has a very aggressive and I really like it that kind of thing and I think it's a really good ending piece for the concert so I, I play this piece several times for different events and it turns out very good because it really I think I can I I can feel this music very well. Um, I can, you know, yeah, I just like this kind of style of music because I really can put myself really into music without thinking about how nervous I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is kind of music you only thinking about music, you don't actually think about how nervous you are, right? So this kind of like, you know, the beautiful um, um, uh, um, uh, slow section is then the, I just, yeah, I, I love this kind of piece. Yeah. Did did anybody see Keiko do it at PASIC? I think it was two thousand. No, it was two thousand six, and I know this because that's when she came to UNT. And there's actually a different version that she does, and it's the wave for marimba ensemble, and the percussion parts remain. Uh, and so she did that piece at UNT, then at PASIC in Austin that same year. Um, okay. And it was it was funny because she played it with UNT percussionists with her percussion ensemble, and there was another UNT student that took a lesson with her, 
and he paid her cash for it, and then she took all the UNT percussionists out to dinner with his money that night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then also, if you go on YouTube, there's yet another version, uh, and it's uh, like a concerto version of it. With uh, there's a recording of Keiko Abe playing it with wind ensemble. Mm. Oh, okay. And I think there's there's also an orchestra version of that same one. So. Just like most Kekoabe pieces, there are different versions, and she kind of gets her mileage out of them. I was at the Pesic that was supposedly, or it was said to be Keiko's last Pesic, which I, I think she's since came to Pesic since then. But I remember it was at a church. She played the wave. I want to say it was, yeah, solo, solo marimba and three percussion. I do remember Michael Maybe she did the, was... the other version like years earlier. I don't know, but that was 2006. Yeah, she... yeah, yeah. I think you're exactly right. That's That's... That is what I remember because that the only one I saw was that uh, the original one. But I remember Mike Udow just tearing it up. <laughs> like he's the one that, of course, I remember her. But I I remember Mike Udow as one of the percussionists. Just like anyway, really, yeah, it has really this cool. like hocketed yelling part in it that's really cool. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Super cool yeah. piece doesn't get played enough. Yeah. Well, I think we're coming near the end, but I would like to throw another question at Ming, just sort of a. Uh, uh, I, I guess it's a job-related question, but can you just, you know, I met you at Moorhead State there with Mace, and can you just tell us how you came to work with Brian Mason and then how you ended up going on to DePaul? Oh, um, I have to say, because uh, we, we have this uh, uh, college uh, kind of contract, do you know, familiar with kind of sister schools uh, from mm-hmm. different universities um my ha- ours has the uh, kind of a contract with the Morris state university that's why i went there for master degree and i was there for one i was i was supposed to be be there I, my planning is just you know one year very hard work and get my degree and go back to taiwan to take my full-time job into percussion group <laughs> so um but the um, ends up like I, I stayed there and then for a long time and and I, I study um, uh, temporary at the WVU and uh, and, and then UK I, um, University of Kentucky eventually got the, my my doctorate degree over there so I, I um, during my uh, doctoral degree and there's some of the certain type of the scholarship of type of you know, assistantship type. And I, I, then I have the opportunity to work um, at Moorhead as a part-time faculty. And uh, they, they, so I, I don't know how this scholarship work, but, uh, <laughs> but ends up, like, I have a few free tuition and uh, can work with the, with them. I think this is a really, really um, turns out very well. Uh, if I say, if I want to say um, my percussion professional development, it was training by percussion group and I would say um, who, this you know working with Brian is really um, uh, a great opportunity training me as a professor yeah yeah he is really really fantastic um, uh, educator and I and then really well organized you know how where he's, he can organize the things fantastic yeah and that he's teaching philosophy and it's really influenced me a lot <laughs> And also, um, you know, uh, uh, the ability to organize how to run a percussion ensemble and a, 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 a percussion studio really, really benefit me a lot. I just have to say he's one of my important mentors in my life. Yeah, I've, I've learned a ton from Brian on those same those same 
lines you talked about just from crossing paths with him again and again. You know, I mean, we've crossed paths a lot. And man, yeah, I just couldn't agree more. Brian Mason's awesome. Yeah. He's also an awesome fisher. Did you go fishing right? with him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't fish with him because I really don't like fish. Fishing. <laughs> but I, I think this that is one of the activities he really likes. And can, you know, he can actually thinking what he's doing, This his habit. Uh, Brian was my teacher in drum corps and I I agree completely that I learned so much from him about teaching and and playing and yeah Yeah. he's just a phenomenal person yeah yeah okay Ben say something nice about Brian Mason Uh, I have a friend that studied with Brian Mason that is really good That's nice. Yeah, yeah, sure. that's... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's really, really um, great um, colleague to work with, and, and uh, I, I think he also reminds me, actually, teach me a lot. Be, be a you know, um, um, percussion musician, whatever, in the United States. Because when I was uh, Moorhead, I had a very like you know, I don't know if a, a Kai Bull had uh, have a have a cultural shock or something. I, I still have a cultural shock once in a while, Sometimes. but uh, he, he really, he really teach me how to, you know, like uh, work with the American students and, uh, and, um, you know, like uh, how to handle your reputation and blah, 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 so on, so on. He's really, really good and helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Great. great. And then when, when we go to DePaul, actually, was it because, uh, my husband got the job over here first, and and then um, um, I um, be able to teach those the music appreciation and the fundamentals at first um, for two years, and then job opens. Of course, I want to jump in. I was just like, oh, you know, I self, you know, I just uh, very aggressive. I want to do do this percussion job because this is how I. I'm doing um, the best to doing this in my whole life and uh, doing, you know, for a long time. I know how to do it and I really want to do it. So, so I just fill it in. That's cool. good timing. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Great. So this is my second year and uh, the job is a, uh, it's a part-time job, uh, but uh, we don't know how to going to, when going to turn full time is as being the part time for a while. Mm. I'm the only one to teach percussion here, so. So yeah. they need you. <laughs> so I mean, oh, I mean, it means you're not. I'll be still more like a, you know, like a valuable percussionist and, and educator. So they need me. How about that? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, guys, thanks so much, uh, Megan, Ben, Kai. And of course, Ming, man, it's just great to see you again as always. And yeah, thanks a bunch. Yeah, yeah it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Cool. Okay, guys. Well, awesome. this was what was this? This was one thirty-one. So we'll catch you next time. And Episode okay, one thirty-two. Our guest will be Robin Cangelosi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's got a lot to say. The youngest podcast about guest dissertation. Ever. About his dissertation, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I was just thinking about, like, a, you know, once you have a baby, you know how much that we can do for for children's, the music education for children. I mean, there's not too many percussion concerts designed for children. Well, we've, we've already decided he'll be an astronaut. Astronaut? Or a doctor. No, no, I mean, <laughs> for fun. For fun. <laughs>
<laughs> We've just decided. That's it. <laughs> just decided. Yeah. I, I keep telling my son they should be an engineer or or a doctor or a lawyer. Oh, yeah. Engineer. <laughs> I forgot about that. Engineer. That's fine. advice for today. Don't be a musician. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> learn, learn from our mistakes, kids. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Is this public speaking? I mean, no, oh yeah, we're good. We're live. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks a lot. Are you sure? Bye. <laughs>